arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Said the sparrow with my little bow and arrow, it was I, oh, it was I. Throughout many of the Matthias Jones books, I inject humor in a large dose of the town patriarch, Hamilton Fletcher. Club Max is one of the early Jones books, and as time went on, I developed the bombastic and utterly despotic personality of Hamilton Fletcher. Even the flamboyant Locke Larson and the bumbling Bucky Driscoll are away on vacation. I think I minimize the humor given the flow of the book and the graphic murder of Gina Quintel. We see for the first time in episode 3, Coco's hideaway from the cops below East Crescent Street in Prince William. Coco is still in Prince William and Jones, when he enters the suite, is overwhelmed by the detail. As the episode begins, we hear Daniels uncover a relevant fact about the murder suspect. I may have cut down on the humor a bit, but the book flows in its action and evidence in the persistent Mr. Daniels. I'm Robert P. Fitton, and episode 4 of the Club Max Murder is off and running. Chapter 19 Hamilton Fletcher had pressured Nigel about the whole Sabota story, now expanded by the Enterprise's report of Joe's hospitalization. Faculty members and townspeople wanted to know how the best athlete on campus had sought a relationship with a prostitute and then killed her when she ended the relationship. Look, Nigel, I'm on my way to Prince William with Strickland. Jones had no ready answers. I don't control what McGill puts in his paper. Well, Hamilton wants you to drop a hint, that's all. Frankly, I haven't even talked to McGill about this. As far as I'm concerned, what happened happened. That's all McGill has written. Jones stared at a picture of Joe running over the goal line just last week. Let Hamilton know Joe didn't do it, and I'm trying to find out who did. He won't like it. Well, he's going to have to like it, Nigel, because there's nothing any of us can do right now. Nigel switched his attention to Larry Resnick. Resnick had gone on the air after his date with Marlena Peterson and opened up a discussion about Joe and the murder. He wanted to set up a defense fund for Joe's legal expenses. Matthias, I'm in a battle with the students as to whether the broadcast should be re-aired this afternoon. That's a college matter, Nigel, and I specifically asked him not to talk about it on the air. What's his problem? Maybe being the hero has gone to his head. I can call him right now. I wish you would, and find the answers, Matthias. I'll talk to you, Nigel. Jones hung up the wall phone as his cell phone rang. Matthias Jones. Jones? Yes, who is this? I'm about four hours from Prince William. Daniels? Is that you? After a long pause, he answered. I have no idea what happened to me. Professor Thayer took the cab back to Hamilton. I returned to East Crescent Street and... Jones chuckled and recalled Coco's instructions to Wrath. Been doing a little partying, eh, Daniels? Oh, dear God, 
You don't have to travel all over creation just to party, Daniels. I didn't think you were the type. I have no recollection of traveling to Vermont. Hargrove, Vermont. This Victorian home. He said as Jones laughed loudly. What is so damned funny? Well, you tell me. I think she broke my shoulder. Who was that, pray tell? Well, the roller derby queen. You went partying with a roller derby queen? You knew about this, Jones. I know you did. I'll talk to you when I get closer to home. Jones leaned back and laughed. He pictured Daniels in some bed with the big woman, waking up in shock. He dialed Resnick's dorm and tried to regain control. The line connected quickly to a party atmosphere. Hello, can somebody locate Larry Resnick? I can't hear you, answered one of the guys. Why am I not surprised? Larry's not here, he said through clapping and cheering. What the heck is going on over there? C.S. Moody. Clarence Moody? What's he doing? I have to go. Strickland beeped his pickup truck's horn out front. Hello? Hello? Jones hung up the phone and grabbed his parker. Moody in the applause in the dorm confused Jones as he locked the door and hurried down the front walk. He opened the truck door and climbed inside. George, something about Clarence Moody really torques me off. And a good morning to you, too, Matthias. I'm not kidding. Strickland brought the truck around. Joe caught Moody cheating on an exam. I tell you, he's vindictive enough to have killed that girl. Strickland turned at the traffic light and started down the hill onto campus. Getting caught cheating hardly motivates anybody to murder. What about Coco? Dom had men that saw you enter Coco's Crescent Street apartment. Well, he's not there. Only one problem, Matthias. I never saw you come out. But Daniels was in there after you, and they ended up carrying him out of the apartment. He said as Jones laughed. Is something funny? I didn't know Daniels had a drinking problem. Maybe he started early. It certainly makes his credibility suspect. Two guys hoisted him into his car and then they drove him away. Well, the word around Crescent Street is that Coco did not kill Quintel. Who told you that? One of the guys in there. Strickland shifted and stopped adjacent to the football practice fields. Jones gazed at the Music Conservatory and Library and then looked up to the dorms on the foliage-colored hill. They all know it, George. She was one of his best girls. Why would he kill her? Stranger things have happened. Strickland started down toward Route 32. I don't know how Kevin Phillips feels about this, but both Dom and I believe that Coco was paying Gina Quintel to be with Joe. No, George, Coco didn't pay her. Sure sounds like that came from the horse's mouth. I'm not saying. Do you know where he is, Matthias? Nope. And if you didn't pay Quintel to hustle Joe, that would leave Moody or somebody else. I keep thinking about that pizza parlor menu that was on Gina Quintel's dresser. Well, it could be nothing, like that sticker you found under the counter. Jones nodded, and they started up the hill. Jones said nothing as they flew by the birch clusters set within the rocky cliffs. That sticker might have come from one of her videos or cassettes, or it might mean something. Bottom line, and you think about this, somebody paid Quintel. Somebody killed Quintel. What was she up to? What was she involved in? Indeed, George, indeed. Jones remained distracted inside the spacious St. Bart's. 
His eyes wandered around the huge buttress spans. The colorful stained glass sections provided him the security of being protected from the cold reality of the outside world. But his thoughts were shaken by Father Gallagher's booming voice up in the wood pulpit. Gallagher spoke of how people construct facades in their lives to hide the truth. He may have been speaking about Coco, but Jones thought more about Clarence Moody, and he did not know why. After the service, Strickland walked with him down the main aisle. You know, I keep asking myself why Mrs. O'Toole suddenly left for Arizona. Ah, you've been thinking about the murder, too. Not the best thing to do during a church service. Well, God knows what happened, George, and he's not saying. They drifted along with a line of parishioners. Gallagher and another priest greeted people on the steps outside the narthex. George, we need to go to Covington Arms. I want to see the murder scene again. Sure, we can go over there. Matthias, said Gallagher, snapping his fingers. Oh, Father, sorry, I was thinking about the Quintel case. I saw you during Mass. You look like a first-year architecture student. Joe's in rough shape. He's stuck at that state hospital. I'll see if I can go over and visit him. You know, I dare say Coco could straighten this whole thing out. Coco is about to be brought in as a person of interest, if they can find him. Now Jones knew he was aiding and abetting a fugitive. Gallagher spoke to Strickland, but he looked at Jones. Even sinners have virtues, George. Covington Arms appeared like a mammoth cold stone monolith in the darkened haze off Atlantic and Covington. Consumed with the murder investigation, Jones responded in one-word answers to Strickland's grilling. As he stepped from the truck, he stared at the leaves covering the storm drain just beyond the stockade fence. For Joe to deposit that knife as he fled from the murder scene seemed unlikely. Why not just drive away with it and hurl it in some remote location or off the Crosstown Bridge? He peered through the metal grill into his own clear reflection six feet below. Joe still could have done it, Matthias, said Strickland. Jones studied the grill slots, barely large enough for a knife to fit through. That's stupid, George, and you know it. People in complete disarray do stupid things. Murderers don't think logically, and I know you don't want to hear that. You're right, I don't want to hear it. They started for the rear apartment entrance. I could see Joe running out the door for his motorcycle if he just murdered somebody he loved, then his only mission in life is escaping on that motorcycle. Strickland opened the rear door and they stepped into the musty hallway. Jones looked along the brown painted wainscoting below the stucco all the way up to Daniels' apartment. Looks as if the omnipresent Mr. Daniels has not yet returned to his abode. Strickland smiled. Daniels is an irritant. Well, if they could name a Sherlock Holmes book after him, it would be a study in insanity. The taciturn Strickland smiled. That's very good. Jones's cell phone sounded as Strickland stepped inside. He pulled it from his pocket and wandered to a small window overlooking the stockade fence. Jones. Well, it's about time, said Daniels. I've been trying this wretched thing all morning. Well, speak of the devil, said Jones as Strickland waded down the hall. Jones spotted him moving up the front stairs. While I was driving back, Jones, I have used my powers of deduction. He knocked on Mrs. O'Toole's door. 
Jones glanced toward Strickland as he knocked again. And did you deduce how much somebody weighed? You were in on this. On what? asked Jones. They guess people's weight at the circus, Daniels. A door opened and a woman with silver-blue hair and a quizzical expression stood in the doorway. She was dressed more like one of Jones's old elementary school teachers back in Indiana, with a ruffled blouse, leaf brooch, and a plaid skirt. In back of Jones, Daniels quickly raced down the hall and plowed his way to Mrs. O'Toole's door. How long does it take to answer a door, woman? Oh, it's such beautiful weather in Arizona. No one cares, Mrs. O'Toole. I have fed your overweight cats and watered your plants, with the exception of last night. Mr. Daniels took a little trip, said Jones. Oh, a vacation, Mr. Daniels, she asked with a smile. Vermont. He went to Vermont. Oh, I love Vermont this time of year. Here is your key, madam. I have a cousin in Vermont, Hargrove. She lives right in that town where they have the house of ill repute. Daniels's face blushed crimson. Well, I, uh... Mr. Daniels is a clean living man, Mrs. O'Toole, said Jones. Daniels did a double take. Why, thank you, Jones. As a matter of fact, that murder upstairs was just too much for him and he's going to back off. Oh, it was awful, said Mrs. O'Toole. I never said that. Your statement on the phone indicated you saw Joe Sabota holding the girl and then he ran. That is correct. I think it might be a good idea if you and Mr. Daniels collaborate and write a description of everyone in that apartment over the last month. Oh, I don't think so, said Daniels, and Mrs. O'Toole pulled him inside. Yes, that would allow us some social time. I don't need any social time, Mrs. O'Toole. After last night, I'm not surprised, said Jones. We'll come back, give you two some time alone. Oh, dear God. Jones shook Mrs. O'Toole's smooth hand. Martha O'Toole. Well, I didn't know your name was Martha. I had a turtle named Martha when I was 11 years old. Enjoy your visit, Daniels. We always like visitors, Mr. Jones. She turned toward her living room. Two calico cats and one orange cat were sprawled on the braided rug. Don't we, Mr. Montague? Oh, so that's Mr. Montague. Of course. The cat with the fur, the color of Father Gallagher's hair, sprang up and nuzzled around her legs. Come back in an hour, Mr. Jones. We'll have a list. Chapter 20 Mrs. O'Toole's apartment was stacked with hutches and packed with mementos of her 70 years on the planet. For the first few minutes, she began a long history of each item, where she purchased it, or if it was a gift, and who gave it to her, and why. Jones studied the wall pictures, earlier versions of Mrs. O'Toole. In one photograph, she appeared as a svelte, dark-haired young lady standing with her friends in front of her convertible from the 1940s. Manama and Sonia, what a vacation! We toured the nation's capital. Do you know that President Truman had the White House all torn apart, Mr. Jones? Well, that's nice, Mrs. O'Toole. You've led an interesting life. Now, if I could ask you... And here is Cameron. Who is uh, Cameron? asked Strickland. A series of photographs of the young Mrs. O'Toole and a thin, blonde-haired man led to a magnificent, oversized, clear wedding picture, complete with bridesmaids and ushers. Strickland leaned over to inspect the photo. Wow, what a wedding. George. Oh, yes, it was. We planned it for two years. Jones looked out the window curtains toward Atlantic Avenue. 
The storm drain and the corner of the stockade fence were in clear view. In the other direction, he could see past the Covington Street corner. Mrs. O'Toole, you have a good vantage point up here. Oh, yes, I saw them all. Them? asked Strickland as her green dial phone rang. Oh, excuse me, the phone. Jones walked over to Strickland as the longer ring sounded loudly throughout the apartment. It's Daniels on that phone. I know it's Daniels. Well, don't let him get to you, Matthias. Don't let him get to you, Matthias. I thought you said he was an irritant. Mrs. O'Toole lifted the phone. Hello? Yes, Mr. Daniels, no. Mr. Jones isn't harassing me. Jones creased his brow and crossed the room. She had the heavy receiver to her ear as she smiled. I know you want to solve the murder. No, I wouldn't say Mr. Jones is a jerk. Let me talk to him, said Jones. Oh, she said, raising her dark brows. Mr. Jones wants to speak with you. She handed the phone to Jones in a loud dial tone shot into his ear. He stared incredulously at the phone and twisted his lips. He hung up. Must have been a bad connection. He is a bad connection. He handed the phone back to her and she set it down. Now, can I get you some tea or coffee? I do so like having visitors. Strickland was about to open his mouth, but Jones spoke first. No, we're all set. I suppose you want to know about Coco Stefani and Gina Quintel. What about him? Well, he would arrive at least once a day and park his shiny BMW out in front, or sometimes the white limo dropped him off, and he would hurry in the front entrance. You can see the front entrance from here? Yes, from my bathroom. He would stay exactly ten minutes. I timed it on my kitchen clock. Then he was gone. He was always here at eight. Sometimes he would knock on my door and give me a dozen roses. What a nice man. How many people do you know who would pay for a vacation? Stefani paid for your trip to Arizona? asked Strickland. Why, yes. What? Jones spun from the window. When did he offer to do that? Before the murder? Yes, it was the day before. I'm lucky I was here to witness. Well, really, not lucky, but... Just who was here on that day, Mrs. O'Toole? Oh, so many men, so many men... Then she giggled with her hand partially over her mouth. <laughs> My God, she must have been tired. Jones exhaled and sat on her smooth, flowery sofa. Well, that limits the number of suspects to dozens of guys. Mrs. O'Toole, what about a young man, tall with dark hair and eyes? Goes by the name of Clarence Moody. Oh, well, there were so many. Does any one person stand out? asked Strickland. Oh, yes, her old boyfriend. Not the football player. That grimy little sleazeball, Al. I'm not sure. He had dark hair. I think he was Spanish or something. Jones pictured Al stumbling from the low rider. She went out with him from time to time. This long limo, not Coco's, would pick them up, and sometimes he arrived in a blue sports car. While Joe was seeing Gina Quintel. Oh, yes, the football player and the Spanish guy. With Joe as her pseudo-boyfriend, what would prevent Al her other boyfriend, from killing her in a fit of jealousy. Well, I heard specifics, Mrs. O'Toole, specifics about the day of the murder. Yes, well, Mr. Stefani arrived at 8 p.m., as he usually did, parked the gray car out in front of Covington. Well, what did you hear up there? I mean, at the time Coco arrived. Oh, nothing while Mr. Stefani was here. Was he upset you were still here and not on vacation? I never talked to him that day, not at all. 
was the Spanish guy here. No, I can't say I saw him. Only Bosco Wasco. Kip Bosco? Asked Jones. Kip Bosco was definitely here on the day of the murder. Mrs. O'Toole said she did not hear anything till past 8.30 when she heard pounding and crying. She ran into the hall, followed by Daniels up to the third floor. She waited as Daniels went inside. Bosco Wasco is in Gina Quintel's apartment just before Mrs. Stefani earlier. Oh, really? Asked Jones as he looked over at Strickland. But he always went over to Gina's apartment anyway. Jones shook his head as he thought about the vice cop making regular rounds to Gina's apartment. He left with Mr. Stefani in Mr. Stefani's car. Bosco never mentioned that. Mrs. O'Toole turned as someone rapped on the door. Excuse me. As she shuffled across the braided rug, Jones stood and rushed over to Strickland. What were those two doing here within minutes of Gina Quintel being killed, George? Coco can be a con man. Sounds like he wanted Mrs. O'Toole out of here. Jones closed his eyes and inhaled. No. No, Coco didn't do it. Jones turned to his left as Daniels, carrying a clipboard and a yellow legal pad, exploded into the room. Jones, you think you're so smart? Excuse me? Al drove that low rider, he said, checking his clipboard. Well, we already know that, Daniels. You fail to understand, Chief Strickland, that I am utilizing my powers of observation. Did you know that he traded in his sports car and laid out another eight grand in cash? I just had it confirmed. Spalding Motor Sales, under the crosstown side of the bridge. So what? What do you mean, so what? The man was being paid to stop our investigation. Our investigation? Now, what do you say, Jones? Maybe somebody paid him. This L did not come by on the day of the murder, I'm sure of that, said Mrs. O'Toole. But you know what Mr. O'Toole used to say? Oh, I can hardly wait for this gem of wisdom, said Daniels. What you see is not necessarily what's out there, she said as if she were a little schoolgirl reciting a poem for the class. Oh, that's brilliant, said Daniels. I'm going to record that in my diary. I'm going down to get some sleep. I suggest you relay my information to Detective Phillips, or I will. Coco Stefani ever offer you a vacation or ask you to be away before the murder? Asked Jones. No, no such offer was made. Good work, Mr. Daniels, said Strickland. Mr. Daniels, perhaps you'd like to come down for a cup of coffee sometime, said Mrs. O'Toole. Daniels had a confused look on his face. Well, I guess, uh, yes, of course, if it isn't my sleeping period, he said, raising his finger. No, I will contact you at the appropriate time, she said, and Daniels nodded and headed for the door. Good day, gentlemen, madam. A little romance, Mrs. O'Toole? Oh, he puts up a front, you know. Underneath it, he has a heart of gold, she said, smiling and shaking their hands. Nice to meet you both. Yes, uh, thank you for your help, Mrs. O'Toole, said Strickland. I may contact you again. Please call me if you remember anything else or anything new happens around here. I will, she said, opening the door. Jones nabbed Strickland once they were outside. What are you telling Daniel's good work for? Well, it was good work. We didn't find that out. Ah, he's getting under my skin again, George. 
said Jones. He faced Strickland in the afternoon sunlight. What about Bosco being up here at the time of the murder? Yeah, but she didn't hear the pounding until later. Strickland got in his truck. Al was in that low rider to see if Joe was at practice. And then he came by later to scare us off the investigation. I keep wondering who Al worked for. Who else could pay eight grand? Well, I know Coco had that ability and he did send Mrs. O'Toole away. But Coco parked his car in such an obvious place, it doesn't make any sense if you're going to kill somebody. Unless he didn't plan to commit murder. Coco knows when to intimidate and when to charm. When to make the right moves and when to back off. There's no way he would walk in here and allow himself to be exposed to a murder rap. Gina Quintel may have already been dead. I can't discount that either, George, but maybe they could have talked business. He may have ordered her killed after that, said Strickland as they stepped outside. The mist had broken and the fall sun shined through the colder air. They just don't kill people, George, unless they have a reason. I don't know what happened around here, but 20 minutes later, Joe comes on the scene and Gene is dead. I think he was distraught and he picked her up in his arms. Strickland sat with both hands on the wheel as Jones panned the apartment building. Mrs. O'Toole waved at him from a side window. Jones smiled and returned the wave, but Strickland did not start the truck. What's the matter? Who else was up there during those 20 minutes? Well, that's a good question. Do you think it was Al? Get me to the pizza parlor, my friend. I have an order to place. Chapter 21 The smell of pizza drifted into the cold air as Jones stepped down the creaky stairs. He learned immediately Mario's pizza parlor had two types of pizza and one size. Cheese pizzas were available anytime and pepperoni was another $2. They delivered for an additional ten bucks. The establishment was carved into a portion of a brick tenement basement. Had no ambience, yet people lined up across the worn maroon linoleum. Strickland merged with the line and finally ordered the pizza at the counter before returning to Jones back at the entrance. I say we just talked to people behind the counter, said Strickland. Jones nodded, took off his parker, and walked over to a woman at the counter. Excuse me, I know you're busy, um... Yes, we're always this busy, said a bald-headed man with a bulging undershirt and a white apron. He threw dough up into the air. I need to ask a few questions about Gina Quintel, the murder. The guy poured sauce and sprinkled the ingredients at blinding speed. Like I told the cops, you want questions, you come back after midnight. With his long-handled flat wooden shovel, he slid the concoction into a colossal black iron cast oven. Then he quickly slid out another pizza. Did you know Gina Quintel? 1 a.m. There any other people who work here? Denny works nights, and now I don't have a delivery boy. Now that mine quit. Listen, Denny's always here at night. He does the pizza. Rings the register. Case closed. Goodbye. Clarence Moody work for you? He ain't here no more. Then he did work here. 1 a.m. Get your answer. Strickland, holding the white pizza box, laughed in the corner as Jones crossed the cracked linoleum and pointed at him. You thought that was all pretty funny, didn't you, George? Well, delivering pizza would be a good side job. Or Clarence Moody, you heard him. Clarence Moody is now within the realm of this murder investigation. Fortunately, Mr. Personality there doesn't work nights. Sounds like Phillips has already talked to these people. Phillips, said Jones, rubbing his eyes. He's got to know Bosco. What about being on the take? 
Yeah, about being on the take, playing around with women he's supposed to be arresting, being at the murder scene near the time Gina Quintel was murdered. What's going on here, George? Whose keister is being covered? You, called the guy behind the counter. Me? You, that's your name, ain't it? You, your pizza's ready. You don't take it now, I sell it to the next guy. Case closed. How much? Fifteen. What do you mean, fifteen? Next, his voice boomed. Strickland handed the box to Jones, and Jones pulled out a $20 bill. He paid, and the register bell rang. The guy handed him back $5 as Jones stared. He crossed the room all the way to the chip brick stairs as Jones shook his head. How's that guy stay in business? Strickland unlocked the passenger side of the truck. Look around you, Matthias. Jones surveyed the dozens of tenements lining the street. He's the only game in town, or at least in the neighborhood. Strickland opened the truck door, and they got inside. I'd like to start a business right next to this guy. I'd have ten different types of pizzas, soft drinks, subs, everything that works. Why, all they want is a simple pizza, said Strickland. Oh, you're just mad because he wouldn't talk to you. Jones fiddled with the radio. I want to find the campus station. That replay of Resnick's little chat is coming on. I'm still ripped at him. No, oh, you're ripped at everybody now. He should have kept his mouth shut, George. Larry or the guy inside? Both, said Jones, and he found the campus station, and Strickland pulled away. You're listening to jazz on a Sunday afternoon. I'm Scott Simon. This is WHMT College Radio, 94.8 FM. WHMT in Hamilton, New Hampshire. WHMT now repeats a broadcast from last evening. Here is student Larry Resnick. Jones shook his head. Where to, Matthias? Asked Strickland as he opened the pizza lid and pulled out a slice. Back to Hamilton, George. I have to figure this damn thing out. Talk to Moody again and then decide how to handle Coco. You have to find him first, like you don't know where he is. I don't. The voice of his starting quarterback was crisp in the truck speakers. Good evening, this is Larry Resnick. As a member of the WHMT staff, I felt it necessary for me to come to you tonight after an important football win over St. Pat's. As a part of the football team, I am proud to have contributed to such a win, but I can't help thinking that certain people were not able to play in today's contest. I am speaking, of course, of Joe Sabota, who is at this moment being held against his will in the state psychiatric hospital outside Prince William. Certain allegations have been leveled against this student and our friend. Allegations against He must have done this broadcast after he dropped off Melena from the Colonial the House. Jones thought as he looked out the window. Why was Resnick on the air at all? Did he feel guilty for taking Joe's starting slot and doing well in the game? For a moment, Jones's instincts were sending him down a side road. Resnick set up Joe and murder Quintel. And where was he at the time of the murder? Something beyond petty emotions was needed to set up Joe. Jones was never one to distrust his side road logic. Resnick hated Joe Sabota, or was he just jealous enough to destroy Joe? Jones closed his eyes but did not eat any pizza, and he wondered why he was fingering Larry Resnick when other avenues were left to investigate. Strickland brought the truck in second gear over the Devonshire Hills as Resnick became passionate and Jones questioned his sincerity. What we need to do is show support for Joe until the real killer is found. Write this station in care of Larry Resnick, and I will be sure to forward your letters to President Kent. 
we will be sending a clear message to the Prince William Police Department and to the real killers that we believe Joe Sabota is innocent of this murder. I'm Larry Resnick. Enjoy your evening. Enjoy your evening, asked Strickland. Oh, he always sends the broadcast that way. It's his trademark. Jones turned briefly and looked back across the valley into Prince William, toward the Crosstown Bridge and the farmland beyond. He could not see the state hospital, but he knew Joe was out there. Resnick did not have to make his broadcast, but he did go on the air. Was it compassion for Joe, or was it something else? What are you looking at? Back toward the state hospital. They crested at the notch near the quarries, but Jones's mind accelerated at a rapid clip. This broadcast was an attempt to garner attention for Larry Resnick. Jones wondered if he needed to start asking people about Resnick. Just as quickly, he rejected his theory and began to think this whole line of questioning down the side road was outrageous. Or was it? Chapter 22 The air stung his skin as he walked the campus, thought about Larry Resnick's broadcast. His cell phone rang as he hiked over to the Wyndham Hall dorm to find Resnick. The one pizza sliced from Mario's pizza parlor kicked back acid in his stomach. Hello, Jones. The cell connection was hollow and distant. Matthias, old boy, this is Lark. Jones stopped in the shadows. So how's the Caribbean, Lark? Oh, Caribbean? We're in Miami. I'm coming back to help you and the Sabota boy. Don't you worry. Jones' body tensed and he stood rigid. Oh, mercy. What was that, old boy? You say the court doesn't have mercy? Listen, Lark, why don't you just stay in Florida? I understand Bucky Driscoll is down there. Everything's under control up here. Oh, no, I couldn't do that to you and go have a good time with Bucky. Oh, yes, you could. Please, why don't you and Flo relax and enjoy yourselves? No, no, the plane leaves for St. Louis at 10, and then... St. Louis? What are you talking about? asked Jones. I'm on Discount Airlines. We head to St. Louis, and then, uh... And then I believe I think we're going to Indianapolis. Isn't that true, Snookum? Oh, yes. Discount Airlines. Lark, those planes aren't very safe. I can get to Jamaica to Boston for $69.22. Well, if you want to stay in Florida, I'll survive. Now, please, said Jones, and he started across the street to the road leading to the hilltop and the dorms. Then I believe we go from Indianapolis to Raleigh-Durham and then back to Pittsburgh. You know their slogan, Discount Airlines, we see America. If you like airports, Jones gazed at the brick dorms, almond pane windows, and black shutters. Dinner aromas drifted outside as he trekked up the hill. When, pray tell, will you be in Hamilton, Lark? Oh, I'll be there in less than two days. Two days? I have two days to wrap this murder investigation. Well, they do run a bus service. See, if we get off in New York and go up to Albany. Call me when you get here, Lark. Of course, old boy. I look forward to working with you again. Bye now. Yeah, bye now, pay later, mumbled Jones as he scanned the four brick dorms nestled within the maples. Lark was the least of his problems as he headed toward a set of glass doors up front. He gripped the cold handle and stepped into the warmer air. Daniels stood in his plaid blazer at the cafeteria entrance and jotted something on his clipboard pad. Jones spun back to the door. Jones, Jones, over here. Jones turned like a chicken on the rotisserie and produced a fixed smile. Oh, no. 
I am glad you're here, Jones. After many hours of reflection, I feel it incumbent upon me to go into the field again, after my little excursion to Vermont, and observe, observe, observe. I was on my way to find Larry Resnick. No, 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 no. We have to go to Sabota's Dom. He checked through the pages of neatly written notes on the indented yellow lined paper. Room 216. Think this through, man. Honestly, Jones, I wonder how you ever got through this without me. Or with you. That, sir, was uncalled for. Jones motioned to the stairs. Come on, Daniels. A few students acknowledged him as he passed the busy cafeteria, but he did not see Resnick inside. Daniels followed him up the vinyl stair treads to the second floor. Now, Jones... What is it, Daniels? I'm just gathering ancillary evidence. I'm convinced I know who killed Gina Quintel. Jones stopped on the landing and faced the gray-haired Daniels. He looked up from his clipboard. Oh? Daniels motioned Jones closer with his hand. This isn't a board game, Daniels. You, Mrs. O'Toole told me about the vacation perk. Coco Stefani wanted her out of the way. You don't know that, Daniels. I do, and there's little doubt. I have this thing figured out using my deductive powers. Well, deductive powers are only as good as your facts. Jones rushed up the stairs, shaking his head. He turned when Daniels reached the second floor. Just because Coco was there. Motive and proximity to the crime. Oh, brother. Jones moved down the corridor and tried to pretend Daniels was not with him. I fully intend to press ahead with my questions of this nefarious character, Coco Stefani. Well, you're out of your mind bothering Coco. He could kill you. Oh, dear God. Jones continued ahead as he approached Joe's room. He saw two narrow beds tucked in, smooth and neat. The combination lock hung over the top right drawer of Joe's wood grain desk. Clarence Moody's desk was across the room and against the pale green wall. Ah, yes, the dorm room where he and his thugs stole the knife and framed your star player. Jones thought Daniels was sketching the room onto the pad and did not respond. He studied the trophies on Joe's desktop, his semester books, unopened, in an empty backpack. A computer tower, screen, calculator, and a brass nameplate were on Moody's desk. Jones picked up the brass plate. C.S. Moody. The man's name. Possibly he was a bank teller or in some other service profession, said Daniels, pacing the room. Well, I'm just shocked that the door is wide open. Well, as far as I'm concerned, Jones, this case is over. Stefani hired men to come in here and take that knife. Above Moody's desk was a black and white poster from decades in the past. A beach was packed with swimmers in a Ferris wheel and roller coaster, hovered over a boardwalk in the distant haze. On the marquee was a show headline by somebody named Cardini in a vaudevillian review. Jones scanned the room again, but was drawn to the lock. He doubted whether Coco even knew about the knife. Clarence Moody was an intelligent engineering student and could have learned the combination over the months that he was Joe's roommate. He wandered over to the window and looked down the hills to the shadows across the frozen campus. I think there's more to this. It's quite simple. I'm right and you're wrong. Jones shook his head. Daniels, you know, sometimes you just push too far. Why, thank you, Jones. Outside, Sully walked alone under the trees toward the dorm. Say, Daniels, could you do me a favor? Why, yes, of course, Jones. Since you have wrapped this up, could you write me a summary? Ah, you know, I can understand your reasoning. 
I will give you an oral summary. The key to understanding this, Kate. No, 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 no. That's not necessary. How would I call you later? Jones moved by Moody's computer and back to the corridor. But Daniels stayed in the room. Are you coming, Daniels? Are you spending the night? Oh, no. I must prepare a detailed sketch. Oh, good. Sir? I mean, it's good that you're so detailed. I'll catch you later, then. I will call you this evening. As Jones bolted down the stairs, he remembered Moody's arrogance in the library. But he also in the library, but he also remembered Moody being in an area containing no engineering books. Music, art, and literature books lined the stacks. He pushed open the bottom doors and stepped into the first floor just as Sully moved inside. Hey, Coach. Sully, what brings you into the pit? Jones smiled. Have you seen Larry Resnick? Well, he was supposed to meet us in the cafeteria. You want something to eat? They're serving pizza in the cafeteria. Oh, no, no, not pizza, no. You don't like pizza, Coach? No, I like pizza just fine. They started down the stairs toward the first floor. What was all this C.S. Moody stuff? Who, Clarence? Yeah, something was going on here the other day when I called. Oh, he was doing card tricks, said Sully. They reached the first floor, and Jones again looked inside the cafeteria. He doesn't seem like a performer. Oh, he's good. He'll pick your card right out from the deck. Jones subtly wove Resnick into the conversation. What about Larry Resnick? Well, everyone knows you're upset about the broadcast. Why is he involved in radio? I thought he was pre-med. Jones grabbed a tray and got in the food line. Maybe this would clear up his stomach problems with Mario's Pizza. His father is a doctor in Delaware. Dr. Resnick wants Larry to follow in his footsteps. You know, all-American, med school, prominent surgeon. Or I should say that he demands that Larry follow in his footsteps. What a pusher. Constant pressure to keep up his grades into medical school. I don't think Larry wants it. He's happier when he's on the air. What about Marlena? She used to date Joe Sabota. They were pretty close till Joe broke it off. How does Marlena feel about some guy she dated being charged with murder? Asked Jones. He loaded a turkey sandwich onto his tray. Dated? Asked Sully, laughing. She was wild about Joe last semester. I couldn't believe he dumped her. But I can see it now. That hooker must have lured him in, coach. It's a stupid thing to get involved with, but I can't say I wouldn't have done the same thing. Jones said nothing as he slid his tray along the slotted stainless steel pathway in front of the food cases. Since the murder, he wanted to know why Gina Quintel was making good money and about to move into a new apartment, and then formed an immediate relationship with Joe Sabota. Quintel was being paid for her efforts, according to Monique. Coco would never leave such an obvious trail. You all right, coach? Jones realized he was holding up the line. Sorry, so Marlena must have been pretty upset. Well, yeah, she and Larry went together a year ago until Joe came along. I thought she and Joe were going to get married the way they were hanging all over each other. Really? That must have made Larry feel pretty bad, said Jones. Sully shook his head. Well, I guess Larry is kind of glad he has Marlena back since he lost her last spring. You know, grades dropped, he blew his finals, and the old man really got on his case. Had to talk to Dean Kent about keeping him here. Really? Jones reached the register, took out his wallet, and left a five by the register. The new information settled in as Jones followed Sully across the cafeteria to the tables along the windows. Joe had taken Larry Resnick's girl. 
Resnick was very upset, and so upset he choked the final exams. When Sully told him the doctor had flown, actually flown up from Delaware last June and put more pressure on Resnick, at the same time he talked to Dean Kent and even Hamilton Fletcher, Jones could sense a good motivation for murder, but he couldn't prove it. There were summer courses and threats against Larry if he didn't get it all together. Larry thinks of his father as a god, and disappointing Dr. Resnick would be tantamount to going to hell. Jones's head snapped towards Sully. Well, that's strong motivation. Resnick blaming Joe for his problems might have pushed him over the edge. Perhaps he wanted to start as quarterback during the football season to do well to please the doctor. But Jones had no evidence to support any of these theories. Blaming Joe with such intensity bordered on psychotic. Resnick didn't seem psychotic, yet the pressure on him was overwhelming. Oh, here he comes now, said Sully. Larry, he said, turning. No, Clarence Moody. Clarence Moody, wearing a green turtleneck and jeans, held a food tray and moved through the line. Oh, good old C.S. Moody. In his own little world. Jones again pictured the lanky Moody in the library. He had almost hidden the orange book he was reading. Jones now remembered books on magic in the stacks leading to the window table. Does he do other magic tricks? I've only seen him do card tricks. Moody found a table in the corner. Excuse me, Sully. Jones moved deliberately across the cafeteria. Moody looked up with a forkful of American chop suey. Must I endure more questions? Should I get a lawyer? Well, do you need one? Asked Jones. You know, I despise people with no credentials. I'll remember that when you finally get your degree, said Jones. He sat in the adjacent chair and Moody scooped the chop suey into his mouth. So, you're a magician. I enjoy it. It's a good outlet. Well, I bet you were studying about magic when I was at the library. Moody smiled a wide smile and held it for several seconds. Very good. You're very observant. You may not be the dunce I took you for. You know something, Clarence? I'm wondering about that lock on Joe's drawer. Moody ate the chop suey but did not look up. You open that lock, Clarence? I have nothing to say. Did anyone ask you to open that lock? asked Jones. Of course not. Now kindly let me eat in peace. I have an engineering exam Tuesday morning. You work, Clarence? I have a full scholarship, which was in danger when Joe caught you cheating. Wrong. You are so wrong. I like your poster. Where was that picture taken? A long time ago. Jones leaned over the table and was inches away from Moody's face. For your sake, I hope you didn't open that lock. You don't intimidate me. You have nothing on me. If you did open that lock, I'll nail you. I will. And you can count on that, C.S. Moody. Chapter 23 From the darkened administration building lobby overlooking the halogen street lamps near the library and conservatory, Jones placed a phone call to Marlena Peterson. Moody continued to baffle him as the line rang, but Resnick just annoyed him. Coco was in Gina Quintel's apartment near the time of the murder to collect money. Marlena answered, Without hesitation, she confirmed that she dated Larry Resnick last spring, but the relationship was structured and had little genuine romance. Resnick only knew the mechanics of dating and nothing of the substance. 
When Marlena met Joe Saboter after one of the baseball games, they immediately liked each other and had a lot in common. She dumped Resnick within 48 hours, and Resnick became distraught. He pleaded with her by phone, showing more emotion than he did during the entire relationship, and he repeatedly asked to have her back. He claimed she was causing him great despair and spoke openly about flunking out of Hamilton. Marlena tried to allay Resnick's fears, but soon realized his anger was clearly aimed at Joe Sabota. They got into near fistfights after baseball games, especially when Joe did well. Nobody tells me anything, said Jones. He remembered talk of Resnick constantly referring to his father's reaction to his athletic performance, his grades, and how he had messed up his finals. The doctor had flown up as soon as the grades were announced. He met with Resnick, Nigel Ken, and a board of professors to discuss Resnick's future with the school. Jones wanted to know when and why she and Resnick had gotten back together at all. Marlena remembered exactly. Three days after the game in the cafeteria, Joe, without any warning, came in and informed her the relationship was over. No explanation, just over. Right at the time of the first game. Very interesting. When I sat down the phone, it rang again. It was Larry. And he asked me to get back together. I don't know where he was. Where did it sound like he was? Like a bar room. He kept mentioning a man's name. Coco Stefani? No. A Milt. Milt? Why is that important? It's important, Marlena, because somebody else is involved in this. said Marlena. Maybe Larry ran out of cash from his payments to Gina Quintel. Later he could have paid Alvarez. Marlena, thank you. I know this is difficult. Just save Joe's life, coach. I'll try. He lowered the phone and walked out the front doors into the cooler autumn air. The wind gust shot through his parker near the library as he crossed the street. Questioning Resnick was a priority as he climbed past the old homes on the Main Street Hill. At the traffic lights, he panned downtown Hamilton. Main Street was quiet and the buildings dark. The clock's chime was louder in the air. Jones now had a very viable side road theory. He wanted to tell Coco that somebody named Milt had set him up by using Larry Resnick to kill Quintel and get Resnick to frame Joe. Jones moved briskly back along the common toward his white colonial. Removing his keys from his parker, he followed the picket fence bordering his front yard. He kicked open the gate and hurried up the front walk. Fueled by the accumulation of unrelated evidence, mounted as he opened the front door and went inside. He decided to call Kevin Phillips. Kevin Phillips. Kevin. You want an update, Matthias? No, wait, Kevin. Bosco knows something about Stefani paying for Mrs. O'Toole's vacation. He said he was summoned on that afternoon to Quintel's apartment by Stefani. Doesn't look good for Coco. Kevin, will you listen to me? asked Jones. He said they were going to play cards. Somebody named Milt set up Coco and Resnick set up Sabota. What kind of bullshit is that? You're just trying to cover for Coco. Oh, here's another little tidbit, Matthias. The roommate, uh, Moody. Jones pulled out a cup filled it with water and stuck it in the microwave. I didn't hear what you said. Mario's, and he quit right after the murder. You know how close that pizza shop is to Covington Arms? Yeah, I'm well aware of that. Kevin, 
Clarence Moody is also an amateur magician. I think Moody may have had the ability to open Sabota's lock on the drawer. But he didn't know anything. It was this guy, Milt, who was... How do you know that Milt has anything to do with Resnick? Marlena Peterson. She heard Resnick in a bar, maybe Club Max, continuously asking for Milt. Why don't you read your Sherlock Holmes books before you go to bed? You and Lane and his boys, they want to nail Coco, and they don't care whether he's innocent or guilty. That's not true. Goodbye, Kevin. Jones stared at the receiver and slowly set it down. He quickly hurried out the door and ran down the walk. Seconds later, the Jeep's engine hummed, and Larry Resnick's crisp voice resonated from the speakers. His cell phone rang. Joan, Moscow. What the hell do you want? Oh, are we in a bad mood, Coachy? Unless you have information for me, Kip, then get lost. As a matter of fact, I do. Meet me at Club Max in half an hour. Tell me on the phone, Kip. See you at Club Max. Jones angrily squeezed the phone. Twenty minutes later, Jones skidded into Club Max's empty lot. Daniel's Etzel was parked up front. The pink neon sign and molding was not lit. With keys in hand, he leaped from the Jeep and sprinted up to the glossy front door. Behind the bar, Kip Bosco, cigarette stuck in his mouth, stirred his drink. Nice of you to show up there, Kochi. <laughs> Having problems? <laughs> what do you think you're doing, Kip? What does it look like I'm doing? Is Daniels here? Yeah, I almost beat him up. <laughs> Where's your information? I think your boy Coco is guilty as sin. You don't know what you're talking about. Coco Stefani. Wearing a teal baseball cap, sweatshirt, and jeans, stepped between the rear folding doors. He waved Jones back toward him. Jones shrugged his shoulders and Coco stormed out. Coco, said the startled Bosco. Kip here was just telling me you're guilty, Coco. Coco snapped his fingers at Wrath at the bar. Get this little rat the hell out of here. Hey, wait a minute. Aren't you rushing to judgment? Come on. Bring him over to Crescent Street. I'll deal with him later. Hey, hey, wait a minute. Come on. What a puppy dog, said Coco, dragging Jones behind the folding doors. Okay, listen, I don't have much time. Wait, I have information. Coco removed several folders from a side desk. What information? You were set up. Oh, what's that, a new headline, Jonesy? I don't have time for this, man. By somebody named Milt. Coco froze next to the desk and just stared at Jones. Repeat that. I said Milt set you up. Milt Carpus? All I got was Milt. Excellent work, Jonesy. I hope you can verify that. Damn. Does that make sense to you? You bet your ass it makes sense to me, he said as he grabbed the black phone on the desk. He pushed the speed dial. Tommy, it's me. Where the hell is Milt Carpus? Yeah. Well, track him down. I don't care how much I gotta pay. You find out where that bastard is, because I'm coming gunning for him. Coco, you should let the cops take care of this. Jonesy, the cops aren't getting within a hundred miles of this guy. I'll kill him with my own bare hands. Why did he set you up? Coco stared at him again. What you don't know won't hurt you. Wrath leaned inside. Hey, the guy Daniels, he's out there asking questions. He mentioned you and Milk Carpus. He was listening in on us, is what he's doing. What do you want me to do? 
Same thing as you did before, but this time, you call the Hargrove police later tonight and tell them that little Lord Fauntleroy was soliciting. My pleasure. And Wrath, get rid of his clothes. Tell the girls to push him outside. Jones smiled as he thought about Daniels running naked through town. Through this door, Jonesy, he said, pointing toward the slider. Where are we going? asked Jones as they stepped into the cooler air near the river. Cops have been over here four times tonight trying to track me down because of the Quintel murder. I need to get some cash out of the safe. Well, your office is up front. The side entrance to my office. Listen, I gotta make this quick. He pushed Jones toward a panel door and slid it open. Jones followed him down a hall and into his office. Coco flipped on the overhead fluorescence. You need to leave town, Coco. You need to shut your trap and listen. If anything happens to me, you'll know this. Neil Coppice was a local guy, right here from the docks in Prince Williams. I grew up with him. He left here 20 years ago and ended up in Southie down in Massachusetts. Now he's moving in on me. I was right. Coppice was either trying to set me up or kill me so he could come up here. I had two options. I could go down to Boston and have a conversation with some people or plug the bastard. Now he's making it easier. The knock on the office door, Coco slid out a huge silver gun and waved Jones to the side. Yeah, it's Bruno. His short-haired, wide-chested bouncer opened the door. He raised his brows at the gun. You need to leave now. Mel Carpus just crossed the state line. Coco lowered his gun. I ain't going nowhere. Well, you can't stay here. He and his people are coming right up to the club, according to Tommy Nelson in South Boston. Let him come, Bruno. He thinks I'm going down. Clear everybody the hell out of here. He looked over at Jones. That means you too, Jonesy. No, I'm staying. Suit yourself. Bruno closed the door. The music out front stopped. Coco opened his desk drawer and pulled out a gun. He walked over to Jones. Jones looked into his dark eyes for several seconds, and then Coco handed him a thirty-eight. Thanks, Jonesy. You've done the same for me. Coco looked out the window. Milt has one big problem, Jonesy. He's got delusions of grandeur. He's a fat little punk who always got his ass kicked on Canal Street. Coco sat next to the parking lot window. Can I ask you a question? Well, you better ask now. You might not get an answer. Did you really pay for Mrs. O'Toole's Arizona vacation? I liked her. She needed a vacation. Well, what's the rest of it? There is no rest of it. What about Al? Al, he worked on and off for me. He thought he was Gina's boy. She was too smart for a chump like Al, but he was playing both sides, that's obvious. When I heard he tried to plug you in Daniels, I thought you'd be intimidated, Jonesy. I've always told you you should come work for me. You must think a lot of your kid there, Sabota. Why was Al trying to kill me? Because of this whole thing, said Coco, lighting a cigarette. He exhaled quickly as he spoke. Al was paid to scare you away, obviously. You paid him? I didn't pay him. Come on, will you? Who paid him? Same person who got the low rider at Spaulding's car place by the bridge. It had to be Milk Carpus. Was Gina going to work for Carpus? Yeah, I think so. Al, the moron, shouldn't have chased you in a visible car like that. He deserves to be dead. The payments to Gina, Carpus. Yeah. He popped a brown leather briefcase on the floor and pulled out a large manila envelope. Let me tell you what really went on. Okay, said Jones. 
Coco went back to the window. My girl Gina, she was a part of a number of girls I supplied to Mayor Picarda and his people, okay? And Herbert Lane. But they talked to people in Boston. Somehow, it had to have gotten back to Carpus. And she did some work down there. That's why she was moving up to a new place, said Jones. Bingo. Was she dead when you arrived in the apartment? Very good question, but I think you know the answer. No. Bosco was trying to hit on her that morning, and she already had somebody up there already. Really? Who was it? She didn't say. I say the killer was up there, man. Her being with Sabota made no sense. Hookers don't have boyfriends. I pressured her. She wouldn't cave. If what you're telling me is true, Mill Carpus helped Sabota get set up. Larry Resnick. Well, how are you going to prove that? Jones shook his head. I don't know. And you know how it was done, said Jones, looking for any sign of lying. Sure I knew. You didn't know. Coco stared at him again, then hit his fist on the wood table. Oh, neither did you, Jonesy. Well, this is all hard to believe. Welcome to the real world, Jonesy, he said, looking outside. Then he pulled a series of computerized bank records from the inside envelope. Carpus and Gina Quintel's bank account. We were real close. How did you get that? I paid somebody down at the bank. Now just shut up. Look at these payments right here, September 4th, a grand. We would have connected Carpus, but I might have been dead before I got there. The 4th, the first game was on the 5th. That's when Joe came over here when he first met Gina, and she got $1,000 the night before. Yeah, well, I want my fanny covered, too. Phillips could easily bring me in because of O'Toole's testimony. You did send her on vacation. I told you I liked her. She never leaves the apartment. Right. Are there other deposits? asked Jones. Yeah, and I have all Al's accounts in here, too. Al got one big one from somebody for eight grand. Coco leaned back in the chair as Jones faced the sliders. He stared at the lights outlining the crosstown bridge. Larry Resnick, doctor's son from Delaware, a kid whose girlfriend was taken by Sabota last spring. Resnick was distraught and almost flunked out. I think he blamed Sabota for the whole thing. Then his father comes up here, and Larry had to go to summer school. Of course, the doctor wants him to be involved in medicine. My feeling is Resnick is and was under intense pressure. Yeah, so he framed the kid with a hunting knife. Very simple. Delivered by Clarence Moody. But he didn't know what for. Whatever. Yeah, well, he's just starting quarterback, Jonesy, he said, pushing the records towards Jones. And he gets the girl. Very sweet, seamless. Right, but I can't prove that he got the knife. It was a combination lock on that drawer. Well, that's a good con, I'll tell you that. This kid Resnick doesn't sound stupid at all. You should have kept that in mind. And the old man has the dough. But you better have your ducks in a row before you open your mouth. I know. If I say anything and Resnick is innocent, the old man will... Yeah, they'll sue your ass. Well, I don't care about that. How did Resnick get that knife? Somebody who knows how to pick a combination lock. If he had the money, he just could have paid somebody. Very simple. It has to be Clarence Moody. Jones checked the bank records again. An exact duplicate deposit was made on September 12th. Jones again pictured the orange book in the library. Moody had the ability to pick the lock. Maybe he was working with Resnick. Sabota's roommate, an amateur magician. He used to work for Mario's Pizza Power. That has to be it. 
I don't know nothing about him, but if he ain't got money, nix him off your suspect list. Give me Resnick's picture. I want to nail this little bastard before Phillips nails me. I don't need the cops in my case. Does Phillips have these bank records? I doubt it. And right now, Lane has nothing to convict Resnick. No witnesses, no records. So that leaves good old Coco Stefani. We have to place Resnick with Gina. Yeah, sure. What about Lane? Can you get him to drop the charges? Yeah, I can call in favors, but let's just say uh, we have some indiscreet things on Mr. Herbert. Oh, really? Smirked Jones. Then call him in. Wouldn't you rather find out who killed Gina? Then his eyes opened wide. A late model white Chevy sedan pulled into the parking lot. Massachusetts plates, here we go. Jones's heart beat fast as he wondered why he had got himself in this predicament. He looked outside and saw the other men in the car. I'll tell you one thing, Jonesy, we ain't going down. Mill Carpus's size stunned Jones. He looked like a retired tackle for the New England Patriots. Two other men were short and spindly. All three men had snub-nosed guns drawn. Wow, yeah, wow. At least they only have handguns. Coco rubbed his upper lip. Jones turned as somebody kicked in the back door. Two men with shotguns appeared. Drop your guns. Coco threw the gun on the floor and Jones slid his gun toward the men. Seconds later, the huge carpus, a greasy-haired, unshaven thug in a turtleneck, smiled as he moved through the door with his other two men. Why you slipping, Coco? I've had men watching this place for days. And you're still a little Prince William punk, Milt. Are those your last words? He said, looking at Jones. Who's the dummy? None of your business, punk. Tough talk for a man without a gun, said Carpus as he approached Coco and went for his silver earring. Coco swatted his hand away, and the two men with guns lunged forward. You can waste me, Milt, but I'll die hating your chicken-hearted guts. Maybe I'll just incapacitate your friend here. Well, I'm sure my bosses at the IRS will appreciate that, said Jones. You ain't from the IRS, Stooge. The IRS wears ties. He nodded to his friends. They circled behind Coco and grabbed his hands behind his back. Now I'm going to rip that thing right off your ear. As he reached toward Coco's ear, Jones heard a loud engine, almost like a plane approaching outside. Coco spit in Milt's face. I've wanted to do this for a long time. The front wall of Coco's office exploded and wood went flying like a cluster bomb. Glass splintered and a huge brown car careened into milk carpus, knocking his body against the far wall. Coco kicked one of the shotgun men as Jones leaped through the air and easily disarmed the two shorter men. With gun in hand, he turned to Coco. Coco had both men covered with one of the shotguns. Carpus, he's dead! Jones's head rotated toward the vehicle, now enveloping Coco's office. He could smell radiative fluid, and he heard police sirens out front. In the driver's side, Lark Larson, unscathed, gripped the steering wheel and stared ahead. Lark? Coco just tilted his head. Ah, I thought I hit the brake. We're in the Caribbean for ten days, and I haven't driven our vehicle. Two Prince William cruisers and a number of motorcycle cops turned into Club Max's parking lot. I never thought I'd be so glad to see you, Lark. Are you all right? Yes, I'm fine, but I fear Club Max will sue me. I ain't suing you, Lawson. You just saved our lives. I did? Jonesy, they're going to bring me in now.
Coco ran over to the desk. He grabbed the computer sheets and handed them to Jones. Hold on to these, Jonesy. My accountant, Bernie Newman, will call you. Follow up on this Quintel thing. I don't know how effective I can be against Lane from behind bars. Two Prince William cops appeared in the huge hole in the wall. Is everyone all right? Jones tucked the computer sheets under his parker and pressed down his armpit. Yes, officer, we're just fine. Oh my God, I injected a little humor with the irritating Mr. Daniels being transported by Coco's order to the cat house in Vermont, where he wakes up the next morning. As far as Quintel going after Joe, Jones vehemently disagrees with Don Pacheco and George Strickland about Coco paying the hooker to do that. Jones finds that Mrs. O'Toole has a wealth of information, including Coco's paying her for a trip to get out of town after the murder. And she names the pizza delivery boy who came off into the apartment complex, Clarence Moody. The suspects remain the same. Any one of them could have killed Gina Quintel. When Larry Resnick starts another rant about Joe Sabota on the campus radio, Jones is furious. And then Daniels further bothers him, saying he is convinced that Coco murdered Gina Quintel. But Jones now has begun to think about Larry Resnick. I'm Robert P. Fitton, scratching my head about these suspects. Next week we'll find out for sure with the exciting ending of the Club Max murder. Who do you think killed Gina Quintel? All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittonbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.